Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 21st, 2005. This is your host, Stephen Novella, President of the New England Skeptical Society. With me tonight are Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. Perry DeAngelis. Good evening. And Bob Novella. Hello. So, the news today... Uh, the, the big news this week is victory in Dover. Yay! Woohoo! Judge John Jones handed down a 139-page decision, and this is the case. Uh, the, the name of the case is Tammy Kitzmiller et al. versus the Dover Area School District. This was regarding the teaching of intelligent design we've been talking about over the last few months. So this was the eagerly awaited decision. I don't think there was really much doubt, at least not in my mind, that the judge was going to decide against the the school district, basically ruling that teaching of intelligent design in the public schools is unconstitutional. The real question was how broad or narrow his decision was going to be. Well, uh, I've perused a lot of the 139-page decision. I've got to tell you, this judge did not leave a stone unturned. This was, I think, the broadest decision we could have hoped for. I wonder what kind of help he had. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, going through a court case like that, you probably, you know, I'm sure you end up well-versed in the topic, but I wonder what outside sources he uh, approached uh, in, in coming up with this. I mean, he didn't write this 139-page himself, did he? I mean, did he? I'm sure he's got guys that, you know, well, him that, and his that, clerks, that I mean, sum up everything. I mean, yeah, he has staff. But he had six weeks of testimony. Right. Uh, he had a lot of precedents in a lot of cases uh, that he was summarizing. He, he actually took the time to go through the history of creationism in this country and the, and the history of the legal cases. Uh, so a lot of it was material he would have had available to him. And then the rest is commenting specifically on testimony that was given before him. Right, right. Which, is, which is what he should do. He should base his decision on the case presented to him. So wh- a few things... That uh, struck me reading through it, actually many things, but some things that um, I think are very significant. The judge, again, I think was trying to really establish an ironclad decision here that cannot be circumvented. He commented specifically on the fact that ID, intelligent design, is has historical connections to creationism. And multiple times in the decision, he wrote that you know a reasonable person assessing this, understanding the cultural and historical context. So he very, very specifically was putting intelligent design into its historical context, saying you know again tying it to its religious antecedents. Um, there were some specific pieces of information he cited, for example, the of pandas and people book that was specifically referred to in the Dover law basically saying that, that you have to teach intelligent design in the public schools. Uh, there were multiple drafts of this book uh, available, and one draft, earlier drafts used the word creationism, you know, I think 150 times, and the final draft essentially was a, a search and replace for, replaced the, uh, the word creationism with the, with the word intelligent design. And not only that, the timing was significant of when it went, when it was changed. And, the, and, that, and that occurred right after the uh, the Supreme legal Court. case that basically said that creationism could not be taught in public schools. So they said, okay, well, let's just change the word creationism for intelligent design and try again. And also, Steve, I'm not sure if you're aware the um, the circumstances under which the the book got into the school was very very shady. 
it was kind of like laundered in a sense, was the description that I read, where somebody involved, you know, he had somebody buy the book and give it to the school or something. It was, dev- uh, you know, a little underhanded. From it was very contrived. Yeah. Uh, so if you, re- if you may recall, guys, when uh, Chris Mooney was on the show, we were talking about this topic, as he had been covering, from a journalistic point of view, had been covering the trial. He, he noted that um, one concern is that you know, where are the creationists going to go next? It's assuming they lose this fight, which they did. Where, where, what's their next move? Well, I didn't even think and, of that yet. And his concern was that, well, what if they just try to mandate a criticism of evolution, teaching the gaps and the, the, the flaws in evolutionary theory, but, but, not, ahead. but not promoting the teaching of intelligence on it or anything, anything that could be overtly religious? Well... The judge in this case, Judge Jones, actually already kind of addressed that issue, and he said that you know specifically mandating tr- teaching about you know the gaps or flaws in evolution only serves a religious purpose. Be- and he again made that historical connection to creationism. It is it is a strategy employed by creationists, and that was enough to link it to creationism. So he was. That, that I was very heartened by that. He's basically saying that you know the creationists can't just keep morphing their strategy from A to B to C to D, and think that they're starting with a clean slate each time. That basically they're not fooling anyone. Whatever it morphs into next is still creationism, uh, for, because you know and the the, the law the, the judge in this case said it is perfectly legitimate legalistically to put whatever it morphs into into its historical context. So that's good. I mean, it basically it's very astute. Saying, yeah, whatever, whatever, however you try to play the game, we have your number, and it's, it's not going to work. Excellent. I've got a, a little clip here from, uh, from his argument, from his paper, and uh, I've, the part of this that, I'm, that I really focused on and I was really interested in is the fact that um, it, it's just so not science, it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, how... How hard can it really be to, to say, look, this is not science. Therefore, regardless of anything else, it doesn't belong in the, in the classroom. And he's got three points here. See, ID violates the centuries-old ground rules of science by invoking and permitting supernatural causation. Right. That's a biggie. That's kind of important right there. Uh, the second one is the argument of irreducible complexity central to intelligent design employs the same flawed and illogical contrived dualism that doomed creation science in the 80s. Right. And, uh, and this, this next one ties into what you recently said, Steve. Intelligent design's negative attacks on evolution have been refuted by the scientific community. That's it. I mean, anything you have, any, you know, all this negative stuff you're saying about evolution, I mean, it's, it's not w- one scientific theory against another. The scientific community unilaterally has said wrong. That's just this stuff is just not true. That's right. I think in, in the part of his decision, he specifically mentioned the testimony regarding uh, Behe's favorite example, the flagellum. He says is irreducibly complex. He said, and yet, you know, scientists gave testimony that in the in the five years or six years since Behe first proposed that example, that much more of the evolution. Of uh, of the flagellum, and I think also the the immune system has been fleshed out. So the fact his claim that it's been irredu- that it's irreducibly complex has been proven false since he made those claims. I mean, new research has been done to show that. I mean, so and he knows that. Come on, you and know he, does, he which, knows which, that. And and uh, which pegs him as being disingenuous, which the, again the judge was very scathing about the ID proponents, basically saying that they were 
not sincere in, in, in their position. To say the um, least, uh, that's what he said, yes. Right. I've got some other interesting pullouts here that I've gleaned. Well, before we before move on, I wanted to just comment on some of the things that you brought up, some of the points. Uh, for example, the um, supernatural aspect of intelligent design, and the judge spent a lot of time writing about that. And that's critical also because, you know, as we've said before, the intelligent design proponents are not simply presenting intelligent design as science. They are trying to redefine science to include supernatural explanations. And the judge spent a lot of time addressing that specific point. First of all, he pointed out that every single ID defendant in the case admitted that there is no intelligent design without a supernaturalism. It, it, it therefore does not meet the conventional definition of science. They admitted it. Uh, and he, then he explained very carefully why supernaturalism equals religion and why it is not admissible in the halls of science. The, the two are incompatible. So he very specifically made that decision. So, and again, of course, this is absolutely critical to this whole debate. And, and um, you know, again, as we discussed before, you, you can't change the rules of science. They are the way they are by necessity. That, that was the most egregious thing, that th yeah. the fact that they were even attempting to redefine science. Steve, there's another thing. He, the, the judge asked the, a lot of the, uh, the board members, he asked them about intelligent design, and the, almost all of them didn't even really know any details. They couldn't even describe it to the judge, and he, and he was so taken aback by that. One, the best that one, that one member said to him was that it's, you know, Things are designed intelligently, and that—I mean, th these people <laughs> talk yeah, about that is intelligent design. Talk about sheep. I mean, just like you do this and say this. Okay, I, my God, they didn't even bother, even months later, bother to to study up on intelligent design so that they can, you know, talk intelligently about it in court. They didn't even didn't even do their homework before court. Uh, they apparently they apparently totally underestimated the judge, or over or overestimated their counsel. So I imagine there has been uh, an interesting response from the ID proponents after such a, a scathing and devastating decision against them. Yeah, I've, I've been looking for, for some responses. There's been some, but uh, and I assume in, in the future the, the, it'll start coming out as to what they want to do. A couple things I got here is um, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the guys at the Discovery Institute, John West, the senior fellow, said that Judge Jones got on his soapbox to offer his own views of science, religion, and evolution. He makes it clear that he wants his place in history as the judge who issued a definitive decision about intelligent design. This is an activist judge who has delusions of grandeur. Now, obviously, he didn't read, you know, he didn't read the, the, the judge's paper, but, uh, I mean, he, makes, he made a point of saying, this is, I am not an activist judge, and this is not an activist bench, and just look at you know, the past decisions he's made, and that, that's just not what he is. Yeah, he's a conservative so, uh, judge who's actually a G.W. Bush appointee, by the way, who, who's religious. Uh, the judge really? Is, he's not, and he, did, he says he's not an activist judge. That the, the school board that tried to impose the religious views on a public school system, they were being activists, and they overstepped their bounds, and they did not serve the public well. And he was absolutely right. I mean, of course, the, the Discovery Institute and the ID proponents are going to be crying like babies about this decision. But they have nothing to say. He's trying to redefine science. Hello, 
they're the ones who are re- trying to redefine science. He had centuries of precedence to establish <laughs> the separation of supernaturalism from natural causes in science. Centuries of precedence, basically since the dawn of science. That is the division between science and religion. Right. So it just tells you how vacuous and just intellectually dishonest their position is. It is. And here's another one. Richard Thompson, uh, the lawyer for the Dover, Dover Area School, said that uh, this judge should not place himself in the position of determining which scientific theory is valid and which is not. It, uh, that's the first part of his quote, which is, which is just so ridiculous because th- that statement assumes that you've got two you know, scientific theories when, sorry, one of them is not a scientific yeah. theory. The premise is wrong right, and the, the conclusion is, is wrong. The other premise there is that, that judges don't decide the validity of science in the courtroom. Of course they do. They do that every day. They hear expert testimony and they decide what, which scientific testimony is legitimate. The judge painstakingly went through all of the testimony on both sides and showed on every single point the, uh, the plaintiff's expert witnesses, you know, the defenders of evolution and science, absolutely crushed the ID proponents who just committed logical fallacy after logical fallacy. Right. The, the fact is, when you're in a court of law, when there are rules of evidence and logic, and you are dealing with people who are experts in logic, lawyers are, if nothing else, experts in logic. That is their, that is their, their skill. That is what they do. You can't get away with anything. And the judge saw through every single one of their misdirections, every single one of their illogical statements. And, and that's it. They were called on it. And this is, this is what's happened Time and again, in every single creationism case that has you know, gotten to the high courts is that you know, under the rules of evidence uh, of a courtroom, the creationist argument falls into like, a, like the tissue paper that it's made of. Here's another one from uh, Richard Thompson, the lawyer. He said it should be left up to the debate that the scientific community was involved with. Uh, he's leaving it to the scientific community. Hello, I think they already made their decision. I mean, there is no debate within the scientific community. Right. The scientific community is u- united in their position that ID is not science. And again, they're also they're trying desperately to portray this as a debate between two different scientific ideas. Again, the premise is wrong. ID is not science. Again, the, and the judge very clearly explained exactly why that is. It fails the test for science in multiple ways. One, it allows supernatural explanations. Two, it's not testable. And he asked that question of Behe and the others, who the uh, ID experts in the case. Tell me a way in which right. intelligent design can be subjected to a scientific test. And everything that they proposed, he said, was actually really just a test of evolution, not a test of ID. And again, they were falling back on this false dualism, saying that if it's not evolution, then, then ID, which is, a fa- which is the, the false dichotomy, logical fallacy. And therefore, they were misinterpreting or misrepresenting scientific tests of evolution as if they were tests of intelligent design. In fact, there are no possible tests of intelligent design because it's not a scientific theory. Interestingly, just um, as we're wrapping up this topic, two days ago, so the day before the Dover decision, uh, there was um, an article, uh, an editorial published by one-time presidential candidate uh, and, and political commentator Pat Buchanan. Now, Buchanan has a reputation for being a bit of a, of a political maverick, but here he, the, um, the name of, the, of his article was Darwinism on Defense. 
And it's basically an attack of, of evolution. Now, Good timing with this article. It was good timing, right? But, the, I mean, interestingly, Buchanan, who was otherwise, even if you disagree with his politics, and he is pretty, he is on the fringe in a lot of issues, but even if you disagree with him, he usually is pretty careful about how he formulates his arguments and, and tries to uh, avoid overt factual misstatements. But now he's stepping into the arena of the, you know, the evolution creation debate, and he dredges up arguments that have been destroyed 30, 40 years ago. Uh, he clearly knows nothing about this topic. Let me give you a couple of examples that I thought were just so egregious, really uh, do, hi- do him a great disservice. He basically reiterates the old argument that survival of the fittest is a tautology because those who survive are defined as those who are the fittest, and those who are the fittest are defined as those who survive, which is absurd. Those who are fittest are the ones who could run the fastest, reproduce the best, who have those list of traits which enable them to survive and reproduce. That's what makes them the fittest, and that's what enables them to survive. So it's not a tautology. That's just a really uh, silly argument that has been destroyed decades ago. He's dredging it up as if this is some kind of a, a new concept. And here's another one. He's, he's, he asks here, or he states here, and there are gaps in human evolution. Where are the missing links between lower and higher forms? He says, come on. I mean, where's, where's, he, you know, where's he getting his playbook from, you know, 30-year-old creationist texts? He must be. I mean, you know, there are no transitional forms. Please, how about there are transitional forms between, you know, uh, whales and terrestrial mammals? You know, Ambulocetus. You know, where is he? Where, where, where was he when that was discovered? How about uh, there are now dozens of feathered dinosaurs that are clearly occupying. Uh, a morphological zone between dinosaurs and modern birds. Uh, he says there's no missing link between apes and man. So, you know, come on, how about Australopithecus, Homo habilis, Homo erectus? I mean, there's, a, there's uh, basically a nice uh, sequence of transitional forms. Again, it's not strictly linear. Evolution tends to branch out. It's bushy, as uh, Stephen Jay Gould used to say. Definitely but still, it, it represents an, an evolutionary, a, a nice, intricate, vast evolutionary connection between modern man, Homo sapiens, and our ape relatives. It's there. I mean, go to a museum. I mean, it, it, you know, Steve, it's, it's interesting that you point out at the beginning of this segment that Pat Buchanan, Buchanan normally, regardless of what you think of his politics, is normally a careful thinker and, and constructs his arguments with thought. But when you get into these subjects, he's obviously invested. He's emotional about it. Mm-hmm. And his really his critical tools fall by the wayside. It's obvious by what he wrote. Right. I mean, he basically did a hack job in that article, which is just different than his than his usual writing. Right. Because he let his emotions get away with him. He needs this to be true. Well, let's let's all savor this moment. This was a, this was a stunning, definitive victory a uh, for evolution miracle. and for science and for our society. <laughs> um, really put the. Uh, Intelligent design on the ropes. Uh, I want Steve, but true, but I want to see this in in the Supreme Court. That would be yeah. nice, but this is still a federal district court. It this is, is a high it's court. great, this but is, man, I this want is still precedent. Court. It may not be it may not be definitive law 
nationally like a Supreme Court decision would, but it is still a very powerful precedent. It is a very powerful precedent, and he went above and beyond. He did. He was merciless on the ID side. It was a great way to end 2005, I think. Kudos to Judge John Jones. Well done, Judge. Here, 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 here. Okay, so joining us now is Jan Helen McGee. Uh, Jan Helen, as she t- tells us she likes to be called, was involved recently in a, uh, a murder investigation. She is a psychic detective who investigated uh, the case of the murderer of Mark Arnold. Uh, the murder occurred in 1993. Uh, she assisted Detective Paul Zeckman in the case, and uh, according to newspaper reports, etc., provided the uh, probable location of the uh, the murderer who was then found. The murderer was Robert Weiss. So, Helen, Jan Helen, I'm sorry, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us and agreeing to be uh, confronted by four skeptics. <laughs> You're pretty good with the Helen part, too, because Helen, my middle name, is the name that I've always used when I work on these cases. It's only recent recently that I've decided to talk about my involvement. It's always been a secret. So the only police officer or detective that knew my real name was my direct link. The rest of the detectives that were working on the case only knew me as Helen. I see. Well, why don't you tell us about this case? Uh, Just start from the beginning and tell us how you got involved. Well, I had worked very peripherally on a case prior to this with some detectives in my town, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, another murder in a, in a, in Palmyra. And this was the first big case I worked on. What happened was I had a dream. Frankly, my whole life I've had murder dreams. I didn't connect them with actual murders until it became quite clear in 1993. That night, um, before I started working on the case, I had a really scary dream, and I woke up my then-husband and told him about the dream. Well, frankly, he woke up because I gasped from the fear that I had about the dream because I saw the actual murder. I told him the whole story of the dream and the murder, went back to sleep, and then in the morning I had this strong desire to go get a newspaper, which is something that I never did, drive to go get a paper. So I did, and when I picked up the paper there on the front page was a picture of the building, and it it was just a one-room shack-type building, and it was exactly like in my dream. I brought it home, and everything in the article was exactly as I had described it in the dream. And my husband at the time just kept pushing me. He said, you have to call the police. You can't. You don't have another choice. So I made a call to the local county detectives and told him the things from the dream and then some other information. Then I went on my computer and typed up some added information, some thoughts that I had, and sent those to him. After that, okay. after that, I, was, I went into his office and talked to him. Then we, we sort of both decided that I would go to the site, to the murder site, and see if I had any more insights. So then 
one Saturday morning, I went in to met them at the municipal building, and the chief county detective, Paul Zeckman, took me into a room that was just filled with detectives, maybe between five and eight of them, because what they were doing that day was they had decided to close down the site. You know, the site had been open for several weeks since this was a few weeks after the murder um, that this happened, and they they were doing their very last collection. Somebody had was coming down from Harrisburg to do some blood collection, and and uh, they were forensic people. This was like the last of the forensic, the last time to go on the site before they released it back to the owner. So I got in there into that room, and there were all these detectives, and they were very very unhappy because they had to work early. It was like 7.30 on a Saturday morning, and they also weren't very happy to see me. And Did they get many murders in that town, or was this maybe a first for them? No, there's murders in this town. I think it's it's um, a town of 30,000, so there's there's a murder every year. You know, it doesn't have a high crime rate, but it doesn't have a real low crime rate. Um, we... The city itself, um, even though I live in the county, the city itself has has some trouble. So they weren't totally new to it. But I would say it's a pretty safe town, relatively mm-hmm. safe, small town outside of Harrisburg. So I was in that room, and Paul Zeckman said, okay, uh, Helen, tell everybody what you told me. And then he left me in that room. So I just sat down, and I proceeded to tell the other detectives, what I what I felt I knew about the case. Um, one of the things that I was obsessed with that really had had no meaning on the case necessarily, but seemed very very important to me, and it was sort of um, it was a pathway, I think. So I, I guess in retrospect, it's a little bit important because it led me down a path. But one thing I saw in this one room building was that the victim had over 25 black rotary phones, those Mm -hmm. phones from the 40s. And I just couldn't believe it. And I just kept talking about these phones. And then finally I realized that only one of the phones was hooked up and that he talked constantly. He sat at his desk and he talked constantly on the phone. And then I sort of got to the point where I felt that he was talking to his best friend on the phone, and then that's how I reached the conclusion that his best friend had killed him. Mm-hmm. So and, I was, and what, uh, what was the significance of the black rotary phone in, in the actual case? Well, um, there really wasn't any. I mean, when we, after I told the detectives in the rooms the things I knew, then we all packed up and went out to the site, and it was snowing. There was some snow in the ground, and everybody was just sort of milling around, and I was just walking around. One of the detectives, one of the other detectives insisted that I look inside the inside this building, and I really didn't want to because as it just sounds so bizarre, but when I saw the murder, and this isn't just in my dream because I, I remember very little of my dreams, but when I see these murders, I see, I sometimes switch from the victim to the killer, and then sometimes I sort of float. So when I saw this all happening, I was sort of, this just sounds so bizarre, I was sort of floating above the floor as I watched it. 
and it's very it makes me feel physically ill when I go through these scenes and work on these cases. Um, so I really didn't want to revisit that part. I felt I had told enough of it, but this one detective just insisted I look in there. Um, before I looked in, another thing that that I I knew about was the that these two men had shared a meal together before before the one killed the other. And so when he opened the door and I looked inside the one-room building, I was quite shocked myself because I didn't know that I was really, I didn't have a clue that I was good at this. I just was driven to share my information. And when I looked in there, there were over 20. I've never seen so many black rotary phones. They were everywhere. They were on the chair. This was sort of a messy place. They were on the chair. They were on the counter. They were on the bookshelf. They were on uh, every available surface had a black rotary phone. And then to the left was the desk that I had envisioned and the phone that was actually working. And then it was it was really creepy for me because I looked over to the stove. There was a stove in there, and on the stove was a big pan with congealed meat. Now, you, you, you mentioned that um, you don't remember much of your dreams, but that you relive the, the murder in a vision. So this is a waking vision that you get? Yes. The best way I can describe it to people, because a lot of people always want to know how do I see things, to me, it's like a memory. Say, for example, you're in the grocery store and you see someone and it, they ring a bell. You say, I think I know that person, but I don't know how or who they are. And then you walk maybe around to the next aisle and all of a sudden you start realizing that that person went to school with you. And then you go down another pathway of memory that says, oh, that's right, it was middle school. And then the next path might be, oh, it was Mrs. Jackson's room. And then suddenly you realize it was art class. You can see the, even though it might be 20, 30 years ago, the memory just comes at you like it was yesterday. You can smell the room. You can see who's sitting next to you. You can remember the nervous habits of Mrs. Jackson. And then, it, and then just the whole room opens up. So mm -hmm. to me, it's just like a memory. I go back a pathway. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes things come very clearly. In this case, even though I was obsessed with the fact that th that after after this man killed uh, his friend, he went outside and smoked a cigarette, tried to figure out what he was going to do, and then decided to steal his friend's identity because he wanted to be his friend. But then I remember that the I was standing the they were ready to close up the site, and I was just standing there with Paul Zekman and. Suddenly he said, where did, where did he go? And that's when I told him that he went to the beach. So to me, it's not only my, my visions, if you want to call them, but also other people's interpretations of what I say. Because I really think that in any kind of murder case, there are teams. And I feel like I was an important part of this team, but mm -hmm. just a part of the team nonetheless, just one puzzle piece. A puzzle can't be put together with lots without lots of pieces, and I was one puzzle piece. If if he hadn't asked me where he went, I might not even have mentioned that. And But until he asked that question, had you had any visions about where he went after the murder? 
No, because I was just, I, I was so upset that he killed his best friend. And then I was, I become the, it's just not very pleasant, but I become the murderer. Mm-hmm. And I see their reasoning. And I find them very, I sort of get on their side, as awful as it sounds. And he the killer wanted to be the victim. As messed up as that sounds, he mm-hmm. wanted to be his best friend. He adored his family. He was divorced, but his his ex-wife, the victim's ex-wife, was very, very solicitous towards him, took care of him, checked in on him. He had a lovely son. The killer wanted his son. He wanted his family. He wanted his life. He ended up stealing his car. I found out later he stole his car, he stole his wallet, he stole his whole identity. And so I was obsessed with them being best friends. I mean, I just couldn't get, I could hardly get past the fact that you would have a lovely meal with your best friend and then he would just kill you. So without, without Paul's question, I don't know if I ever would have gone there. Right, but when he asked the question... I mean, did you have a vision at that moment, or was this the the information was with you already? It just came right out of my mouth. No, I yeah. hadn't even thought about it. It just came right out of my mouth. I said, "He's at the beach," and then I just thought it was so bizarre because there was there was snow all over the ground. Who would go to the beach in the snow? But and then I could see that he had gone to the beach when he was a child, and this was a safe place for him. So I told Paul that I didn't think he was at the Jersey Beach. Now, here in this town, when people vacation, they always go to the New Jersey Beach. Mm-hmm. So that would be the first thought. I said, he's definitely not at the New Jersey Beach, but I thought it was either Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, or Ocean City, Maryland. And then I was suddenly, it was just like, he's, I realized he was definitely there. At one of those two places? Yeah, and then I said, are, you know, are they close? And Paul said, they're sort of close. Because I can't, when I do this work, I I become very right-brained, and I have to sort of float. It's like I'm a musician, I'm a music teacher, and when I play music and really want to interpret it properly, I have to get into my right-brained activity, and I have to act sort of floaty. And that's the same thing that I have to do here. So so my any left-brained activity sort of leaves me. So I, there's lots of things I don't quite get when I'm when I'm doing working on cases. I see. So you're not good with directions when you're in this state. No, I, I don't even like driving. I don't like being in charge of anything. I just like to sort of just let myself go, like you do when you're falling asleep, sort of. Now, is this something you've always been able to do? Say, when you were a little girl. Sure. The 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 first memory I have is I lived in a row house up until I was two. So this was before I was two years old. I remember waking up in my crib and standing up and feeling the urge to cry for my mother. But then I remember being able to see through the walls and see through the floor and see where she was in the house so that I didn't have to cry because I knew that she was in the house with me and I didn't have to be afraid and that she would come. Then the next memory that I have is I must have been about kindergarten age because I remember 
the sequence was that I asked my mother if I could go in the front yard alone. She'd let me in the backyard alone, but not in the front yard because it was a busy street out front. And then I remember she finally decided that I was old enough. So maybe I was even six, but probably five, because I remember I walked to school alone in first grade when I was six. So I was probably kindergarten age. And she let me go in the front yard. And I used to go behind this big, big, fat tree that I could completely hide behind. And I would move around the tree and stare at the neighbors. And I remember that I could see through the tree and see through their walls and watch what they were doing. And we had ladies that were widows, and three of them were widows, and they really led a pretty boring life, so I didn't really like watching them. But Mm -hmm. right next door to us was a family that was totally out of control. And so mostly I would go in the front, and, and in retrospect, it seemed so odd, but I would stand there with my back to the tree, but I would look back through the tree and so that I could sort of lean against the tree and my face didn't have to be against a tree. And so I could look back through the tree and through the house and the mother would always be screaming and she would throw herself on, herself on the stairs and cry and then the husband would come down the steps and he'd yell and then he'd slam the door and go out to his car and peel away down the alley. Uh, did you have um, any other paranormal experiences as a child or older? Have you ever seen a ghost, for example? <laughs> I don't really. I, I, I see dead people. You I, do? I don't really like the term ghost because it has such a bad connotation. I don't see lots of dead people. I don't really like to see dead people or to talk to dead people or have them talk to me, but I I do, but not very often. And I think I always have known when there were ghosts in houses. I could pass houses when I was in the car and see which ones. I remember seeing, oh, that one has a ghost, that one's haunted, That's, that's a... what I guess I could deem a friendly ghost, and that's an right. unsettled ghost. I always consider them unsettled when they're not very happy. Do they ever talk to you? Dead people? Yeah. Yes. Yes, but not in the way that live people talk to me. I get these messages, and they're just, it's information. You know, the only way I can think to explain it is... I really believe that it's the historical speaking in tongues when Mm -hmm. I give information because my brain doesn't feel like it's giving the information. I feel like it's coming through my body, like my body is like a a radio or a conduit for the information. So it's not like I actually hear someone's voice that has died. I just get the information and then it comes out of my mouth. Okay. Okay. But I really don't like, I don't like dealing with dead people. It's just something I can do like an artist. Is it frightening or just unpleasant? The murder cases are unpleasant, but I don't think it's any more unpleasant for me than it is for anybody else working on the case, any of the police detectives or the forensic people um, or the coroner. I don't think it's any more unpleasant for me than it is for them. It's a very unpleasant job to have to do. 
um, am I afraid? No, I'm never afraid. And it, I think that it makes me feel sick, but I don't think it makes me feel any more sick than anybody else has, to, than, you know, an EMT or anybody that has to deal with things like that. It's mm-hmm. It's upsetting, but no more for me. But I'm really not afraid of anything. I used to be afraid of the dreams, but what's so wonderful is that since that 1993 dream, I don't have murder dreams anymore. Mm-hmm. That and was the I've last one. That was the last one, and I've had them all my life. And so I think it's real important that I keep working on murder cases because now my my visions come during the day when I'm strong enough to deal with them, and they I can have my nice, peaceful sleep. What do you dream about now? Do you remember your dreams now? Fun things, vacations, old boyfriends, just normal things, nothing. I don't have... Once in a while, I'll wake up with my jaw clenched and not quite know what it is, but it's usually just nothing, just nebulous dreams with mm-hmm. nothing that really means anything, just worry dreams, you know, that old... I, I have a few of those dreams, like you're late for something. I constantly have this dream that I that I'm getting ready to go on vacation and I can't find the clothes to pack and I'm going to miss the plane, just those dreams. Mm-hmm. That people, Typical anxiety that. dreams. Yeah, anxiety dreams, right. But I don't have those murder dreams anymore. I'm so thrilled. So, again, we are talking to Jan Ellen McGee. Um, Evan, go ahead. You had a question for her? Yeah, Jan Helen. Um, so, um, you mentioned other, well, or you at least alluded that uh, that you've worked on some other murder cases. How, how many have you worked on? Well, it's really hard to say because until just recently, I just I would just work on them and really not pay too much attention. I would say probably as much I work on them until I run out of energy. So maybe three to six murder cases a year since '93. Three maybe, to six. Yeah, mm-hmm. since '93. Uh, what sort of successes have you uh, experienced with uh, with those cases? Frankly, I'm not sure because what happens is I work on the case and I tell all the information and then I just walk out of the room and don't ever contact the police again and I don't even care or find out. The only reason I found out about this case was because Paul Zekman was on a show called The FBI Files on the Palmyra murder from this murder I had worked on previously. And after he finished filming that for New Dominion Pictures, they asked him if he knew of any psychics. And he told them about me but said that I'm very private and and that he would call me. And when he did, I said, mm-hmm. you know, Paul, of course not. I've kept this a secret. I, I don't want to talk to anybody, especially not television. And and then there was silence, and I go, oh, you want me to do this, right? And he said, I think you should, because he knew that what my my goal, one of my goals is to teach law enforcement how to use their psychic ability, how to, uh, uh, there's physical manifestations that we all have, that all mm-hmm. psychics have, and I think that they can be pinpointed, that they can pinpoint psychics within law enforcement. So he uh, said, you know, this will get you what you want. So right. and he told me, he that's the only reason I know about this case. Sure. Oh, I'm just curious if, if you're curious at all about your, you know, what could be uh, deemed a rate of success as far as your, uh, 
your uh, psychic visions go and to how they actually actually turn out. Um, well, would, you, would, you, would, you, would you venture it? Would you venture a, a guess, maybe in the in a percentage of how often I'd say they're accurate? I say a hundred. Now that doesn't mean that I solve every single case. No. But like one time I worked on a robbery. I, I seldom work on robberies, but I remember early on, it probably was 1994, I worked on a robbery and I called a, a cold call to a, to a cop mm-hmm. and he just, just t- flat out told me this was ridiculous and I told him, I don't know how it can harm you to write down what I say so I can get this out of my brain. So he did and a year mm-hmm. later he called me back, apologetic and telling me every single thing I said was true, and he's so sorry, and he doesn't know why he acted like such a jerk. Uh, other police, there's been cases that I've worked on that I know aren't solved, but part of, I, part of it, I think, is that they didn't follow my advice. Paul Zeckman trusted me, and he did what I told him to do. And so if I give my information and the police do not do what I suggest, then it's not going to get solved. So, so you, as far as I'm concerned, I think my, my information is 100%. It's one of the few times in life I'm right. Now, can, can you turn your attention to a case and come up with information, or um, can you choose the cases, in other words, or do they choose you? Um, a little bit of both. Most of the time, I'll pick up the newspaper or I'll see something on the television, and then I'll say, oh, no, 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 that's not the way it went, or I'll know something, and then I'll just call. Sometimes I've been called by police all over the state and even out of state for help, and then I can I can just work on that case. Occasionally, I don't know anything at all, but mostly I have something to go on. What do you think of other psychic detectives? I think most psychics are scam psychics. And See, I'm most of them are not genuine. How, how do they work? How, how does their scam? How do their scams work? You know, I think it's just like any other scam. How does? Are, are you men scientists? Some of us. Some by trade. Some by trade. Other by interest. Yeah, by trade or interest, right? So right. you sci- you have scientific thinking. So d- yes. you know scam scientists. Mm-hmm. There's scams in every walk of life, and they all work the same. They're very smart in that area, and they use tricks, and they BS. So it's it, so they it's intentional because sometimes it could be intentional, other times it could be more of a you know self delusion. Uh, thinking they might think that you know that they're you know that they're not they might not be intentionally scamming, but but sometimes they do. So we, we you know we, we you come across all different types. Exactly, but I don't think right. it's any different from any other scam. Whether it's a scam lawyer or a, right. somebody says they're an FBI man and they're scamming some girl, no matter what it is, you use the exact same trick. So how how can we tell the difference between the the Scam psychic detectives and the genuine psychic detectives. Well, I'm coming out with a book that's called Psychic Search. Don't get scammed. And uh, really, frankly, the book took is over a hundred pages of all the different ways that you have to go about to to not get scammed. I think that it's just the same as a doctor. You need to find references. In my case, no 
police detective has ever worked with me without calling my references. Mm-hmm. And I have a profiler, which, uh, you know, a profiler. A profiler, yeah. there's only two profilers in the state of Pennsylvania that I know of, and one of them vouches for me, and then Paul Zeckman always vouches for me. But I have a whole, whole long list now, but before I always used the two of them. So the one thing is to find references. Uh, I think that you have to use your instinct and your intellect if you're using a psychic because if you're, like, I was at the Hershey Hotel and sat down next to a psychic and she told me, she just everything she told me was wrong and it was clearly wrong. Um, so I, I knew right away that that she wasn't accurate. I mean, if she says six things, none of which are accurate, then there I can see right there I think you just can't you can't let yourself get hoodwinked and I well we certainly agree with that right yeah it's just like any other any other scam person you take their information you check out their credentials and well what would a credential be though like in this in this field I mean there really aren't any credentials because there's no gold standard I mean you uh that that get begs the question that of course we're interested in as scientists and skeptics is how do we know if this phenomenon is even genuine at all uh, from a scientific point of view not necessarily as sort of a personal point of view but just um in, in the abstract well i think most psychics most psychics are scam psychics and as far as proof do you love someone uh, do you love of, someone? Of course I do, and I. I but can you prove it? Uh, well, that is that is a not a scientific claim. You know, if you make a claim about the facts of nature, that requires science. Making a claim about a subjective feeling is just completely different. So you really can't well, compare this, the two. This is the subjective feeling. But you, but you if have tangible. You but you are claiming tangible results, though, right? But there are tangible results to love. Yeah, but the, the two types of claims are not comparable in terms of uh, th- that analogy that you're trying to draw. Either a phenomenon is real or it isn't real. And if it's real, then, it, then there needs to be manifestations that can be objectively determined. So I mean, it sounds like, are you making the argument that there's no way science can ever validate your abilities? Yes. And why is that? Why would it be impossible to validate your abilities if they're real? I think you can validate my results. Well, that's like you can ra- validate right. the results of love. Love right. makes you feel wonderful. Love makes you kinder, more caring. And so you can go to Paul Zeckman, a man who is the chief county detective in this town, a man who has had stakes his reputation on his good work, a man that you will see on the television show is is a conservative, careful slow-moving man, and he will tell you that I found his, I enabled him to find his murderer. And, you know, we, of course, accept the fact that he probably believes that. Um, and, again, you, you know, you knew coming in that we were skeptics and that... Oh, I and don't basically mind. We, our, our interpretation of all of this, I think, is a little bit different. I don't think, and we don't necessarily question people's motives or beliefs, because we can't read people's minds, so we don't know what people really think or, or or believe. All our interest is on the tangible, verifiable 
results. We do know, and um, just from experience with many, many different you know, paranormal phenomenon, that uh, it is the, the capacity for people to be fooled by themselves, by events, is enormous. And the purpose of science is to essentially control for this, the really the vast human tendency to deceive ourselves. So let me ask you a question. If we wanted to, to subject you to um, some very basic common sense controls to see if we could validate the results of your investigations, would you be willing to do that? If I felt it, I would be willing to do anything that was moving forward for good. I mm-hmm. would absolutely refuse to have to try to pick numbers or to try to make guesses because my gift is not here to tell anybody something they already know. Right. My gift is to find out what people don't know. Well, let me so give you an example. Me, let, me, let me give you an example. Um, this okay, has been and the, then I'll tell you the way I think you should test me. Sure, absolutely. When you get involved with a new case, uh, the, really the only thing that we would need to do would be to record all of the information that you produce about the case before the investigation reaches reaches its conclusion, and then in some sort of objective way compare what you predicted to what was actually discovered. That's all. It's very very straightforward. Sure. I mean, you can do the next. You can do national cases, as far as I'm concerned. Every time there's a national case, you can call me, and I'll and I can tell you. If, if I know something and where we go, or you can just pick a case. You can find a case where you live. You don't have to tell me hardly anything. You can find an unsolved murder case, and we can see if we can go down that avenue. That's great. You know, I think that would be very instructive. And, and if, you're, if your goal is to promote the use of psychic detectives and to teach people how to use them correctly, this is the way to do it, in my opinion, because... You could silence us. You could silence all the skeptics if you with with verifiable data, because that's really all we're asking for. In fact, you know we screen applicants for the uh, you know Randy's million dollar psychic challenge, and we could do this as a screening test. Right, because I don't want to. I really don't like the way he does things because I just don't see how that's to humankind's good. Well, donate the money to charity, but you could do whatever you want with it. But the the point is, it's it's a very public, undeniable test. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the money. I just don't want to do a test that is just not is not for the public good. Because this, when I do these any kind of work in this way, it takes a huge amount of energy. Yeah, I understand. And when I work on a murder case, I often I often physically get ill. So if I'm going to do this and take this energy to try to because I have, I really don't have any interest in proving it to anyone. I it understand. just is. But I but would be glad to work on more, more murder cases. That's great. But yeah, all, again, all, you, all we would ask is that you do what you're doing anyway. Do the cases that you're going to do right. anyway, but we'll just right. verify them in a way that um, doesn't leave any, any room for guesswork, that we know that we can measure in a scientific way the accuracy of the predictions that you make. Uh, sure. And and inf- and you know we will allow you to set the parameters any way you want to, as long as it allows for some objective observation and conclusions at the end. Jen uh, Helen, so you said you were going to give us a suggestion about how to test you. Out of curiosity, how how would you test yourself? 
Exactly like you said. Have, I, I would like to work on murder cases, and you go ahead and find out how much of my information is accurate. Okay. That's great. That's so great. we're in basic agreement. That's good. That's that's great. So we definitely would like to do that because I think, um, you know, again, we, it wasn't our purpose to debate with you here tonight. We really wanted to hear your, your experience, yeah. your side of the story. Thing, another then, thing that I can do is that if you can, if I, if you physically put ten people in front of me, I can probably tell you what's physically wrong with all ten of them. You can make like medical that's, diagnoses. That's very testable. Um, I'm, I'm not a medicine person, but I can see I can see what's wrong with them. What part of their body is weak? Right. Has a weakness. Just, so you okay. could ask all ten people what okay. was wrong with them in advance, and and you could test. You could well, see. Give that. me an example of the kind of the kind of statement that you would make. You said um, what part of the body? Usually, is it usually just comes out with your right hip hurts. Okay, something like that. Your right hip hurts. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mention specific diseases like you have diabetes? That no. kind of thing. No, just no. More. I'm not that accurate because I'm not a medical person. Yeah, just more basic symptoms. No, I can usually just see if it's bone, muscle, or blood. But yeah, but and if it's if it's, um, I can also see if it's inherited and it or if it was an injury. Mm-hmm. Steve, okay. that's a lot more easy to test than going through an, an entire, you know, say a murder case and investigation and following it uh, you know, to its conclusion and then com- doing a comparison. Yeah, well, that, we, that would be another. That would be that. an easier yeah. test to do. Two different tests. Uh, but I think we should do both. I mean, because there are different right, kinds right. of tests. And I, uh, you know, frankly, I just think I get a lot more power on the murder stuff. But I, I just know that I'm, that's one other thing that I'm good at. Jen, Helen, do you have to be in the room with the person in order to uh, see what's wrong with them? Or do you do it from afar, but you ha- or you have to be in a close proximity With the health problems, I usually like to be in a room with the person. In a with room. the murder cases, I, I, murder cases, I often start on the phone. But then when it starts to get upsetting, I usually like to be with a police officer. So I, I'm just wondering how that's going to go. But, it, you know, if we get to that point, there's no reason why you couldn't, if there was a case, there's no reason why I couldn't also talk to the police officer and possibly they would let you be there or have me continue with them. You know, if is, it gets to is, that point, we'd want to continue and at least pass off my information to, to a detective. Is there an average amount of time <clears throat> Jan Helen, that it takes to work on a murder case? Is it a number of hours, days? Usually I have three different meetings. The first meeting, I make the cold call. Then I type things into my computer and send them. Then the, then the next thing is usually the police has me come in and I go through more information. I might have, the detective might have maybe three questions. I usually tell them not to talk at all. I don't like them to talk about anything. And um, occasionally I have a question, um, like, why couldn't the victim get out of the bed? And I remember that the, they said because the victim was in a wheelchair, so he couldn't run away from the problem. But um, then the, after that, then usually I go to the site, the murder site. So that's about it for I see. I see. four different times. And it can... It can be maybe two to four hours when I meet them, maybe two hours at the meeting and, you know, a couple hours to go to the murder site and maybe drive by some other area that uh, where, the, where maybe something to do with the crime that the police officer wants to show me. And the initial meeting on the phone, you know, that's just pretty brief. And then I send out my information that I type up. And that's usually, I usually write one to two full pages 
and then when I call again, then we schedule a meeting because usually as a result of what I've written, I have so much accuracy that then they schedule a meeting with me. Do you ever encounter that nobody could know? Do you ever encounter police who uh, are hostile to working with you? Of course. Don't don't, don't want to hear what you have to say. Hang up. Almost all of them. Almost all of them don't want to hear what I have to say. That you know, because there are a lot of scam psychics call them, and they they a lot of them. A lot of them have never worked with anybody like me before, but I have a Master of Arts degree, and I'm a music teacher, and I have a lot to, I, you know, have a reputation to uphold, and I have really good references. And so pretty much a good detective, though, is always going to listen to anything someone tells them. They might not go on for the six to eight, you know, maybe six to eight hours it takes to talk to me, but they're sure going to take the information briefly at least, but then once I tell them things that nobody knows, then they all go further with me. Jen Helen, it was a pleasure to have you on the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you for for sharing all of that with us. I look forward to working with you in the future. It sounds like we have an agreement that uh, you will um, do a uh, investigate a murder case under our observation, so we can basically tally your accuracy. We'll we'll be in touch off off the air with um with the details for that, but that is that is excellent. I'm looking forward to Good. doing that. Try to pick the victim being a male instead of a female. Uh, victim a male, whatever any details you want, we'll do. We 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 always try to design these but to accommodate the the uh no. the, the claimant as much as possible. We'll, right. We'll okay. Just disregard that. Any I'll do anybody. Okay. It's all right. But but we want you to feel as comfortable as possible. We'll, whatever details you will make you. Well, I like when they're bad guys. Bad, bad guys. But you don't have okay. to find bad guys killing bad guys. Okay. Whatever you want to do, I'll do any cases because I, I, it's real important to me to help society as much as I possibly can. Excellent. Great. Well, thanks again. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So that was our first interview with a, a non-skeptic. It was quite interesting. What did you guys think of Jan Helen? Oh, I thought she was very lively. Uh, I think she's very interesting. And, of course, the, the thing I take away from this is, our, is her agreement to uh, be tested by Absolutely. the uh, New England Skeptical Society. That, we, that's that's going to be the only way to, to get anything meaningful out, out of this in terms of scientifically. I mean, her claims are so glowing. She thinks she has 100% accuracy. 100% accuracy. Well, that's I mean, what she said. Yeah, when you, when, you start, when you start saying that your predictions, if they didn't come true, they will in the future in some indefinite time, then, then you could easily believe that. Hey, I'm 100%. You know, I never, I never make a mistake if, if, it's, you know, if, you're, if you leave it wide open right. to the future. Yeah, but, but Bob, remember she said, she said in the interview, she, when, she, when she deals with these murder cases, she's looking only into the past. So it has happened. She claimed 100% accuracy to that with no... Uh, with no um, you know, pleading, pleading to any future predictions. Yeah, I think you guys are both referring to comments she made to us right. while we, when we weren't recording. But she did say she can, when she makes predictions, sometimes there are predictions of the future, and that's why they may not be true at that moment. But when she does do her murder cases, she's always looking into the past. But we, we will propose to her two tests, actually. The simple one will be for her to, she can basically detect medical symptoms or ailments you know, um, people. She did it for us over the over the phone. In fact, that'll be very easy to test. And then the next time we have a viable murder case that's you know regionally convenient, um, geographically convenient, then uh, we again just need to get her to 
list all of our predictions ahead of time before the details of the case are known, and then we'll compare that list to whatever details eventually come to light, point by point. She won't get to pick and choose or morph them to fit, you know, what what ultimately happens, or just uh, you know remember the hits and forget the misses. So mm-hmm. it'll, it'll it'll be it'll be instructive, and as usual, the the most instructive thing will be how she responds after um, the test is completed. But we will see. We did get her to agree to a test. So stay tuned for her she seemed, she Not only did she agree, she seemed eager. She seemed eager. She, she clearly, I th- my impression is that she really believes that in her abilities. I got a little bit of a sense of a fantasy prone personality from, from some of the history that she gave. Um, so I think she's probably sincere. Uh, I think just... Uh, yeah, I don't, I sounds don't like she does that. a little bit of a cold reading when she sits down with the detectives. Uh, to get to glean some of the details of the case, and you know, she works with detectives who believe in her ability, so that makes cold reading really easy um, when you're when you're dealing with uh, a subject who um, who is predisposed to believing, you know, in, in your abilities. Um, but again, sitting here, all we can do is speculate. Uh, we need to gather some firsthand information, and we'll do that. We offer tried to bait her with the million dollars. Again, she. Uh, didn't seem too eager about that. That's actually a little bit of a red flag, you know. And I, th- I would think that if someone genuinely believed in in their own powers, especially if they think that they're a hundred percent, that they would be most eager to snatch up that million dollars. I have never heard anybody with a paranormal claim of any kind say anything good about Randy's challenge. Right. Right. Uh, never. Well, he doesn't. He, he doesn't do it right. He sets it up. She can't win. He, may, you know, they they hate it. They hate him and they hate it. Yeah, what they don't that, realize is because, yeah. because he what he does <laughs> is uh, is ac- scientifically accurate. Right. Right. I mean, it, it makes them look. Think, it makes them look so bad. I mean, think about it. I mean, that that's such a huge thing that he that he's willing to give anyone a million dollars. Right. And, and folks, and just so you, just so you know what he wants you to do in your application for the for the million dollar challenge is state what you can do and with what percent of what degree of success. And that's basically all the information he's looking for. And people and most of the applicants cannot answer those questions. And right. and they cannot they cannot put it into a cohesive statement. Right. But we'll do that. I mean, we've we've I've made up several protocols now to screen you know applicants for that, and you, it, it's a it's a uh, it's a negotiation. It's a discussion back and forth, you know, to get them to sort of coalesce their claims into something tangible, and to come up with you know a way to score it and a and a, and a threshold for what we would consider to be success. One guy it was interesting. One guy wasn't sure why we weren't going to use a p value of point point oh five, which basically means a one in twenty chance of uh, having a positive result by random chance alone. It's like, well, you know, Randy can't give a million dollars to every 20th person that he tests you know, with, <laughs> right. the, with the psychic <laughs> challenge. But anyway, so we'll do that. And if she wants to do the, if, if, you know, we could definitely could screen her, you know, for the Randy challenge. And if she passes, we'll be happy to pass her along to Randy. But no one apparently has ever gotten through the screening phase of the challenge. So again, uh, we'll definitely follow up on this um, in the future. We also have been uh, in discussions with the detective on this particular case. You know, he may or may not um, come on the show on a future episode, but we'll at least uh, talk to him about the case and see if we can get some some further details. He was not available for tonight. Well, guys, it was another fun episode. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you, Steve. Our pleasure, as usual. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information about this and other episodes, visit our website at www.theness.com. Theorem is performed by Keneno and is used with permission. Last theorem, let him far from the mainstream. Sleepless nights, slow burn days, problems, proofs, endless delays. Oh,